Let us begin with the book of Exodus. It hasn't been lost on many people, including preachers this week, that, uh, that we need a, a kind of salvific exodus from uh, the horrendous events that are taking place. I want to talk about a very strong reading of the birth and um, infancy of Moshe Rabbeinu. Childhood is a knife planted in your throat. You don't remove it easily. And what do I mean by that? I, I am suggesting that if we look at the birth scene and the initial scene in chapter 2 of Exodus, about the, the, you know, the bush, the reeds, the Miriam, the story of Batia, and I'm not the first to point this out. Um, Zornberg is the first to see something very dark in it. She says, Moses' mother's decision to set him afloat in the Nile, noting the irony that this both fulfills and defies the Egyptian decree that every male should be cast into the river. Pharaoh's daughter adopts him and he grows up as an Egyptian prince, the prince of Egypt. Consequently, says Zornberg, Moshe's identity is fraught with ambiguity. So I want to pick up where she left off and stretch it even further and say that his identity uh, is fraught with trauma, that what happened was very traumatic and that might explain further events in his biography. The only one I want to discuss today is the stuttering and stammering excuse before God. He is Hebrew by birth and Egyptian by culture. The Israelite people are both his and not his. And so no wonder when God asks him to represent uh, the Israelites, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and free the Israelites from Egypt? And Zornberg, in a beautifully poignant reference, says that this whole birth story reminds her of uh, George Eliot's title character in Daniel Deronda, another man who loses and then regains his Jewish identity. So it brought me back to reading Daniel Deronda. He grows up as the son of an English aristocrat and learns that he is Jewish and turns to Zionism. So I want to pick up from her, but before I dive into the text, I just want to uh, throw at you a, a folklorist understanding of uh, Moshe as an abandoned hero. If we look at the story of Moshe's birth and his uh, switcheroo and his going into the court of Pharaoh, uh, many ancient abandoned hero stories have survived. The placing of him in a basket, abandoned to the River Nile. Um, folklorists and scholars have reminded us, including Jonathan Sarna at Brandeis and uh, a professor at, at, at the Near Eastern Judaic Studies Department where I did my PhD, uh, he, he tells us about the nativity of Oedipus in Greek mythology. Laius, his father, had received an unfavorable oracle uh, from Apollo and when a son was born to him, he handed him over to a shepherd to be exposed on Mount Kitheron. And disregarding the instructions, the shepherd entrusted Oedipus to another shepherd who gave him to Polybus, the king of Corinth. And they reared him as though he were their own son. 
Another genre is the birth of Heracles, or Hercules. He was ab abandoned by his mother and found by Athena. The third instance is Romulus and Remus. But in ancient Near Eastern, before that, the identical motif concerns the birth legend of Sargon, King Sargon of Akkad, the great empire builder of Mesopotamia. Uh, the cuneiform text claims that he was the love child of a high priestess of noble descent, the father being unknown. Disclosure of his mother's indiscretion would have entailed the loss of her office, and so she placed him in a basket of reeds, which she corked with bitumen and abandoned him to the river Euphrates. Carried downstream, he was discovered and saved by Aki, the water drawer, who adopted him. Later in life, Sargon was favoured by the goddess Ishtar and seized the throne of Akkad, which he held uh, for 55 years. Now, Sarna obviously points out the differences and how the Bible is cleared of all the mythological process. But in fact, I want to recover that uh, through our Midrashic reading uh, of the whole story. First of all, I want to point out what I did was I, I took the, 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 the 10 verses of uh, chapter 2 of Exodus and I color-coded them, meaning uh, I don't look at the text as a two-dimensional black-and-white text, but where they're repeating leitmotif words, uh, I color them in. So, for instance, um, you'll see a repetition of uh, Vayikach, Vatikach, Vatikach. Do you see that? Vatikach, Pasparo. Then we have a repetition of Vatitspaneo, Hatspino. Then we have Meinekes, Meinekes, Vatinekehu. But the most important one to point out is the word Ben. Vatar ho'isha, that's Yocheved, Vateled Ben. But look at the end of the pericope, Vayigdal ha'yeled, Vativiehu lebasparo, Vayihilo leben. There is a switching of the Ben a switching of identity, a switching of ownership, a switching of maternity from Yochebet to Batparo. And in between, what we see is a, a disassociation with the mother. For no longer is he bent. She hides him for three months. She can no longer hide him. And so she puts him, she it sort of said, Vatosem ba et haben, et bna. No, et hayelet. It becomes now, she has had to force herself to disconnect somehow psychologically so that he is no longer the Ben, but he is just a generic child. Vatiftach vatira et hayelet. So Batia opens the, the ba casket, basket and sees the yelet. And Miriam says to her, could you let me find uh, a wet nurse? The medrash says that she'd, she didn't need her, but she had tried giving her to her maidservants and all the wet nurses of Egypt. And, he, and the little infant Moses would not suckle uh, from the non-Jewish breast. And in fact, there's a, there is a halacha that uh, one should not give one's child to a non-Jewish woman to, to wean. And the Gras actually makes out that halacha in his commentary on the halacha, says he gets it from this posuk. And then finally, Vatikach um, Isha Hayeled in verse 9, she takes the Yeled, 
and she weans him, she suckles him, she brings him back to Yochevet, but not as her son, as the Yeled. So there has been this disconnection, finally, Vayigdal HaYeled, and then he's brought to Beit Paro and becomes a child. Very nice. So we have a light wart that already points out to us that we have a problem here. If we look at the 10 verses, what we can see is the following. It's no coincidence that the story is built in a chiastic form. The structure leads us to translate the story into a panoramic picture made up of landmarks in Moshe's life. There's a climax following which he moves backwards, as it were, to the starting point. And so what I want to point out to you is the chiastic structure, which means this is A, this is A1, this is B and B, C and C, and the chiasm is the punchline that is buried in the middle of the text, not at the end, as I would see in regular Western literature. So, in light of the background that, the fact that the man in question takes a wife is not a simple matter. This woman bears a son despite the decree that all boys must be cast into the Nile. Of course, the question is, what happened with Aaron? Aaron was three years older than him. What happened with his birth? Which lends some scholars to say that the whole business of throwing in the Nile was 80 years earlier and that his putting him in the Nile has nothing to do uh, with the decree, but maybe has to do um, with his speech impediment. We'll come back to that. All right. And when she could no longer hide him, she couldn't hide him. So the happy period comes to an end and now looms a process of what I call separation and severance from Ben to Yeled, comprising a number of steps. First, the mother takes a papyrus box, put the child's in it, leaves it on the bank of the Nile. Okay. And then the next stage, which is Miriam, the sister, which parallels the sister's proposal, right? So the mother parts with the child. Later on, the mother re-enters the narrative and weans the child. Now comes the second inclusio, the sandwich. The sister stands from apart. She watches, observes to know what would be done to him. And then she sees the Teva Betochayam. But Paro sees it, approaches the Nile, and notices the box, and sends one of her maids to collect it. Now, we read this story with the knowledge of its ending. So this scene strikes us as a positive development, heralding good news. But the innocent initial reading arouses some difficult emotions in us, the readers. Pharaoh's daughter? That's the daughter of the enemy, the daughter of the king who has decreed death for all Jewish boys. And her handmaidens are women of the court. This encounter is dangerous, maybe catastrophic, but suddenly, at the moment of suspenseful climax, there is a surprise. And that's the chiasm, the encounter. Vatiftach, vatareyu et ayeled. And what is the climax of the whole drama? The Hine Nar Boche.
the child was weeping. And she feels mm-hmm. compassion. The Medrash says, why was he weeping? He was sitting there happily in his thing. Ah, we we're gonna met, we're gonna meet the angel Gabriel who keeps intervening in this wonderful story. The angel Gabriel hits him on his mouth. Vatachmololov, and suddenly this daughter of the enemy feels compassion. A moment of compassion changes the course of a child's life. You know, how many times we hear these stories from the Nazi era about a wife of a Nazi officer or a child of a Nazi officer taking pity on a Jew. This is not something very unfamiliar to our cultural memory. The Hinei Nar Bocher, Medrash says, he's crying because the narrative has to change and there has to be some unseen, hidden, divine intervention through the agency of the angel Gabriel. And closer inspection of this climax shows that even the compassion shown by Pharaoh's daughter fails to dissipate the dark fears regarding the possible results of the encounter. Moshe's future as a boy growing up in Pharaoh's palace is murky. What sort of education will he receive? What values will he learn to cherish? How will he treat his fellow Israelites? But a world far removed extends this merciful hand. So we're talking then about identity and belonging. And this 10 psukim for me, picking up on Zornberg, represents this duality of identity. He's the son of a man of the house of Levi, who takes his wife as a daughter of Levi. And now he's been liberated. His mother does not develop his dependence on her. She liberates him. She prepares him for a new reality that he will face when he is taken to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. She became his son and imprints the story of his identity as a Hebrew child now with a new identity. And so this reveals to us layers of identity that are now part of Moshe Rabbeinu's personality. At the deepest point of his being, he's the son of his mother. She represents his natural genetic roots, the foundation of his life. But around that core, his mother treats him as a yelet, as a child, meaning letting go and allowing Pharaoh daughter and the Egyptian culture to take over his maternity. So in this sense, Moshe Rabbeinu is brought up on Egyptian culture. He receives an Egyptian education and eats royal food. Pharaoh's daughter makes no attempt to hide his true identity. She gives him a name that tells the story of his childhood and even more importantly, bestows on him the qualities of a Moshe, a savior. Without this aspect of his name, his affiliation with his own people would remain abstract, distant and unrealized in it. Its presence serves to activate and maybe motivate Moshe in the direction of his destiny. All very nice. So why am I seeing something dark in this? And here I try to show you, if we take the chiasm of what's going on, we're talking about the framing event. Now I got this from a Hebrew article by David T. 
in Megadim, Tammuz 5754. The story opens with the birth of the sun and concludes with the adoption of the sun. These framing verses, the beginning and the end, the family circle, conveys the essence of what happens, while the plot that develops within the frame is simply an expansion. So the frame expresses the story's essence, the exchange of mothers. It would seem appropriate for the pattern, and she conceived, and she bore, and she called him, Vataha, Vateled, Vatikra, to occur in succession like we find in all the other mothers of Genesis who bore children. But here, the child is transferred from the guardianship of one mother to that of a Niphon. Now, the crux of the exchange of mothers is perceived in the very name Moshe. The word Moshe, the original name that Pharaoh's daughter gives the child, is the critical aspect. And I want to quote from the Nitziv. <laughs> the Nitziv in the Hamagdava to this verse was familiar with this explanation of the name Moshe based on an ancient Egyptian language, and he accepted that. The only one of all the Mephorashim Rashi just quotes the Tanchuma, so it has a performative aspect. I'm calling him Moshe because he was drawn out. Natsiv says, and he became a son unto her. Since she saved him from death and also raised him, it was considered as though she had given birth to him. As she says, and she called his name Moshe. Now hear what the Natsiv says. And I have seen written, Beshem Reb Shmuel Bohemia. Bohem is Bohemia, Reb Shmuel of Bohemia, who was an Egyptologist. <laughs> that in the Egyptian language, this word in this form means son. Moshe means son in Egyptian. And this interpretation is correct. Thus she explains the reason why the child is hers. For I drew him out of the water. For it is as if he drowned in the river. And so his father and mother have no portion in him. And he quotes the Shiltus. <laughs> and I am the mother of the child. This is the acquisition of a person. You save his life. You acquire him. So Mishisiu is not related to the name Moshe. But the explanation is related to the Egyptian. Beautiful. And what does this produce? So we come to the trauma. And the trauma comes later on when at the burning bush, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Vayomer Moshe el Adonai. And here we first see the results of what I consider this childhood trauma. Moshe says to God, Be Adonai, lo ish devarim anochi. I'm not a fluent orator to go in front of Pharaoh. And then he says, over the last seven days that you've been trying to convince me to go to Pharaoh, I, I'm, not, I'm not fluent. Why? Let me explain to you why. Suddenly we realize that Moshe has a speech impediment. We weren't told this before. This is the first time we're told He's grown up in the household of Pharaoh, he now is by the burning bush, he's a shepherd, 
and he meets the divine, and uh, we're told that he has kfad peh, kfad loshon. In fact, in other traditions, if I could share with you in the Quran, it says, Moshe actually doesn't just say that, he says, Oh my Lord, expand my breast for me and make my affair easy and loosen the knot from my tongue that they may understand my word. And Allah cured him. <laughs> and some Christian interpreters expect that God's presence ought to cure Moses of his speech of his speech deficit. That easy-to-read translation of the Lutheran Bible says, and now even after talking to you, I am still not a good speaker, implying that I was expecting that you and I, through our speech interaction, would cure me. But he makes no explicit request in the Masoretic text. In the Lutheran Bible, the German is Eberfelder. Ich unbeschnitte Liebenhaber. I am uncircumcised of lips. This is the Bible of Martin Luther, whose monumentous conversion on July the 2nd of 1505, the day he decided to become an Augustinian monk, took place near the town of Stottenheim, meaning the home of stuttering. I thought that was really funny. Anyway, let's go back. What does Rashi say? I'm heavy of mouth. I speak with heaviness. In the Old French, the word is balber. Balber in Old French or balboutier in Modern French means stuttering. And then a gloss added in German or Yiddish maybe, stammerein, stammering, stammering. <laughs> Where did this come from, the stammering? So you might say, well... You know, it's genetically engineered. We know that 70% of all stammerers are genetic, 30% are environmental. Well, let's look at the environmental aspect. What could have caused him uh, to stammer, to stutter, to be kvad loshon and kvad pair? I know I'm being far-fetched. It's a very strong reading, but I want to connect this moment in time with the original abandonment of Moshe by his genetic mother. Well, let's look at a wonderful medrash that will illuminate it for us. We're going to come back to our friend Gabriel, who smacked him on the mouth to cause him to cry originally. Uh, that's not all he did. Let's see what he did. Shemot Rabbah, chapter 1, 26. Now remember, the first 14 chapters of Shemot Rabbah are early, they're connected with Breshit Rabbah, so it's 3rd, 4th century. After the 14 chapters, we lost the manuscript. So anything you read in Art Scroll from the 14th chapter to the end of Shmot Rabbah is just the Yalkut taken, this medieval Yalkut, and put back in. But this comes from the earliest strata of Shmos Rabbah. And hear the story. The Medrash says, well, where do you come? Where do you come off? In the middle of nowhere, suddenly he's giving an excuse. He could just say, I'm reluctant to go. I'm an Egyptian prince. They're not my people. He could have said any other excuse. What is he referring to by Kvad Per? And now we have a very, very interesting and dark introduction into the life of Moses once he was introduced into the house of Pharaoh. She would constantly be hugging and kissing him. 
Ke'ilu hoyobno, as if he was her real son. The Medrash realizes he's not her real son, but the Medrash is giving us a, like a tragic view of his childhood. Does he realize he's not her real son? Of course, she called him Moshe, the future savior of the Israelites. So there, there is a disconnect here, revealing a gap. She wouldn't let him out of the palace. She, he couldn't go out into the streets, into the marketplace, into the shopping malls. He was a prisoner of the palace. And because he was really handsome, everyone wanted to look at him and stare at him. Anyone who looked at him couldn't take their eyes off him. They couldn't take their eyes off him. Even Pharaoh was completely enchanted with the young lad Moses, the prince of Egypt. And he would play with the little boy. He would take off his crown, put it on Moses' head and play with him. Well... What happened? Now the politicians in the Senate were not happy with this because they had gone to the astrologers and the astrologers had said that this boy is going to take over the Pharaoh's kingdom. This isn't just play. This is actually a, pre, a pre-emanation of what is going to happen. The Omru, and so they had a big conference. Miss Yorun Onu Mizeshe Notel Kisrecho the Noten Al Rosha. So she, they go into Paro, and they tell him, "We are very worried that this man, this little boy, this Moshe, is going to take your crown eventually." Shelo Yeze Oso Sheiu Omrim Sheosid Litol Malchus Mimeko, and we've got to prevent that he can do it. And so they were divided into three sections. Mayhem Omrim Lahorgo. A third of them said, let's kill him right now. Let's, you gotta kill him, Pharaoh. Mayhem Omrim Lasorfo. Others say killing him won't be enough. You know, in the ancient Egyptian culture, you weren't um, dead just because you were buried. You could come back. Okay, then let's burn him. There's no, there's just no, nothing left of him. And in the middle of this group is this man, Yisro. Huh. Yisro, the hoyo Yisro Yoshev beinayem vaoymolahem, and so Yisro says to them, "Listen, Hanar hazeh ein bodas. Why is he responsible for playing with the, the golden crown? He doesn't have any das." So Yisro, the future father-in-law of Moshe, remember all relationships with fathers-in-law of power are fraught. I can attest to that. Okay, let's put him through a test. Well, if he has no das, what are you testing? Ah, we're going to test his unconscious mind. We're going to test what his intention is by where his hands go. So they bring him. Everybody knows this from high school, right? Actually, from primary school, this story. So where did Moses get his lisp? Oh, right. They bring him a tray of gold 
and a burning coal. Im Yoshit Yoto Lazov Yeshbodas. Yisro is saying that if he points to the crown, then that tells us that he has intentions to take the crown. That's the trial he's saying. Because he will be attracted to the crown. The im yoshit yodo lagacheles, but if he just goes for the coal, aim bodas. The ain olov mishpat movis. And that will save his skin because it means he has no intention. Miyat hei viulafonov, a sholach yodo lakachazazav. So they bring it to him and he stretches his hand to take the gold, signifying that he has das. Signifying to Yisro and of course the others that his intention is to take the throne. Uba Gavriel Vadoches Yodo. Once again, the divine intervenes and Gavriel pushes his hand to the left. The Tofas Esakacheles, so that he takes and burns his hand on the burning coals. The Hichnis Yodo Agacheles Latoch Piv. And he puts the gacheles into his mouth to cool it. The nichvesoloshono. So two things happen. His tongue is burnt. Umimeno loshon. As a result of the traumatic burning of the tongue comes out his heaviness of the tongue. Kvad loshon. Ukvad And his inability to articulate speech fluently. This very dark medrash explains to us why Moshe Rabbeinu is kvad per v'kvad lashon. However, it also explains to us something very traumatic that happens to him in his childhood that is emblematic of where his allegiance lies. Does it lie to helping the Israelites by taking the throne, by challenging Pharaoh? Or does it remain with his adopted household? This, for me, represents a deep wound. And in psychological literature, DSM-3 diagnostic code is a notion called attachment trauma. That is, children who have been wrenched away from their biological parents, and we've seen this in the Holocaust, when Catholic parents who raised children who were given to them refused to give them back, or they had to go to the courts. Uh, This was a whole genre of legal maneuvering going on in Germany with and Poland with children who were sequestered in monasteries and in orphanages and with with wonderfully uh, righteous Gentiles who had become attached to them. And very often the children felt Christian and didn't want to come back home. This attachment trauma forces the child into a developmental dilemma with no way out. A constant horror without resolution. I I think that that is a very profound understanding of what's going on here that I believe will also reflect itself in Moshe Rabbeinu's layered personality as we go through Shmos, his behaviors, his responses, his outbursts, and the depth of his personality. I just want to end with a beautiful reading of uh, Robert Alter as to 
uh, taking of the Teva. She puts him in the Teva, this wicker ark, and corked it with resin. The basket in which the infant is placed is called a Teva, an ark, the same word used for Noah's ark. The prominent word of the Nile is Yeor, an Egyptian word. As numerous commentators have observed, the story of Moses begins with a pointed allusion to the flood story. In Genesis, a universal deluge nearly destroys the whole human race. Here, Pharaoh's decree to drown every Hebrew male infant threatens to destroy the people of Israel. As the ark in Genesis bears on the water the saving remnant of humankind, the child Moses born on the waters here will save his imperiled people. And this narrative recapitulates the flood story itself, a quasi-epic narrative of global scope in the transposed key of a folktale. The story of a future ruler who is hidden in a basket, floating on a river, which has parallels in, Hitta parallels in Hittite, Assyrian and Egyptian literature. And Otto Rank, the psychologist, and this is why I'm quoting him, sees the basket as a womb image and the river water as an externalization of the amniotic fluid. It is clear from the story that water plays the decisive thematic role in Moshe's career. He is born safely on the water, which Pharaoh had imagined would be the very means to destroy all the Hebrew male children. His floating among the reeds, the Suf, foreshadows the miraculous triumph over the Egyptians that he will lead in the parting of the sea, the Yamsuf. And his obtaining water for the thirsting people will figure prominently in the wilderness stories. To which I would add the water of his saliva, which was used to quench the coal, is now also part of the story. I'm telling you this not because I'm trying to reread strongly a biblical text. I'm picking up where Zornberg, in her psychoanalytical model, left off because I consider this um, autobiographical for all of us. That is, Moshe is every Jew. Moshe, that's the Hasidic literature teaches us, right? Moshe is the Bechina of Das. It's the Bechina of that intuitive soul that we have. And the Medrash said, we have to be bochen whether Yisro is father, or whether he has das or he doesn't have das. And that is my springboard to look at this as a manual spiritual discipline, as something that I can learn about my own self, that each of us can learn about our own childhood traumas that we have been in denial about, you know. A friend came up to me in Israel a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, uh, she studies Kabbalah and Chabad. She said she had a dream in which her mother told her that she was really unwanted. And she woke up sobbing from this dream. And she said to me, everything now makes sense. Now, I'm a twin. My darling sister's listening. And I was number two. But we were unexpected. They expected one child. I was the unwanted child. <laughs> and what does that mean? What does that mean unconsciously? What does it mean for the traumas of our childhood, you know? I look at this as a healing text. 
that the rabbis, by inserting this traumatic experience of this child who may or may not have been a Bardas, who was playing with the crown with his adopted father, that that actually interferes with his relationship with the divine. After seven days saying to him, I want you to do this and this is your destiny. And he's resistant because of that wound. So I think everyone should look deep into their own origination stories. And I think certainly from Otto Rank and from Zornberg and from other psychoanalysts, the trauma of stuttering and stammering, which we now know uh, neurobiologically, 30% is due to environmental reasons, not just genetic uh, reasons, gives us pause uh, to understand uh, the way trauma affects us and affects our life decisions. Have a wonderful week, everybody.